0: This Saturday night. <laughs> What's going on this Saturday night? This Saturday night. <laughs> it's my macho man Randy Savage voice. Pretty good. It's pretty good. I mean, do you think that um
1: do you think that Osama bin Laden didn't plan on 9 nine eleven being as successful as it was?
0: Yeah, I'd say they're probably pretty surprised how, <laughs> how think, well it worked out. Yeah, do you
1: think he was watching the TV? He's like
0: fuck well this is a thing now
2: <laughs>
0: yeah it's kind of like uh yeah never mind <laughs> i was gonna say something deeply personal <laughs> um yeah you know what i think that the response to all that was so wow Nine eleven. 11 yeah <laughs> what why <laughs> This you know, nine hundred and seventy five <laughs> trillion dollar a year military was just uh bested by box cutters. A couple of guys with box cutters. Yeah, man. Totally. You it, know. It says a lot about innovation and scrappy upstarts. starts. Really is classic Dave and Goliath tale. Right,
1: right. You know? You think Osama bin Laden will be
0: uh sort of
1: rehabilitated in several decades? And about
0: after the American Empire falls. Yeah. We might be putting like inspirational quotes <laughs> about <laughs> David Best and Goliath. You
1: mean we'll be putting like teenage girls
0: will be putting into their Facebook bios things like Well Facebook will be long gone. Oh yeah, you're but right. Whatever the thing of the day is. Instagram or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> whatever the new thing is, Instagram yeah, or whatever. Yeah. It it they'll they'll be like you sometimes you fight
1: them and then They hate you, and then you fight them some more, and then you win, or something like that. Attributed to Osama bin Laden, yeah, yeah.
0: And it'll be, uh, it'll be like the new, the future version of uh, shoot for the moon, and if you fall, you'll still land amongst (laughs) the stars,
1: shoot for the White House, and if you fall, you'll still land amongst the Twin Towers. (laughs) That, if I was Osama Bin Laden, that would be my biggest regret. Like, that would be my biggest, like, fuck. Like, the
0: Twin Towers were kind of whatever. I really wanted the Pentagon in the White House. You well, know? you know, I've brought it up many times, but nobody ever talks about the get, getting the Pentagon. Yeah, yeah. That That's was the a... Pentagon. is made out of fucking... Yeah. Nine yards of fucking steel and concrete. Yeah, man. That, that shows you how... Big that
1: motherfucker is that a massive plane wrecked into it, and, it, and we it, don't
0: even talk about it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that, 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 that I'm, that I'm sounding a lot like one of these or guys, but <laughs> well, I think I think the reason why is because there's nothing like symbolically arresting, like seeing two t- massive towers, the the two largest objects of American capitalism
0: fall on live television. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know what it done what it what it did is it sort of allowed this country an opportunity to show um to show like you know sort of uh, unfettered capital and just these bloodsuckers as like these little little lost lambs. Uh-huh. But we couldn't like Show any weakness with the Pentagon, you know what I'm saying? True. So we just buried that. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Right, right. But now we have to go defend the honor of our bankers.
1: Dude, that is very true. That is very true. It was, uh, it was an embarrassment. The Twin Towers was what gave us the uh, the impetus that launched that war. If they had just hit the Pentagon. um it would have been an embarrassment. I feel like.
0: Yeah. You think we would have gone to war if they had just hit the Pentagon, or or do you think that they would have tried to? Oh, we would have went to war, but we'd right. have just. Yeah. It would have been under different auspices. I feel like. Yeah, you're you're right. You're right. Well, you know, it's really not a one to one because Bin Laden was a you know rich kid too. So. Yeah. So fuck him. <laughs> That's true. He was. So, <laughs> so yeah, he can, he can go to hell, too. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> But that's the <laughs> But a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. That's the thing. He just
1: got I think he just got lucky. I don't think he really planned on it being as successful as it was. I think he woke up on nine eleven.
0: Oh, it's kinda like when game. you it's kinda like when you bluff to the point. When it actually happens You're like Oh you're shit like, I'm in over my head Fuck <laughs> Yeah
1: Well it didn't turn out Well for him He spent the le- the next What Nine years living in caves And ha- ha- houses get,
0: and You know Shot in the back of the head By some fucking I think it's really Really hilarious <laughs> <that they're... laughs> by, by some of those fucking What do you call those By some fucking Identity Europa guys Yeah Yeah <laughs> <laughs> Right, some identity Europa guys from like Iowa, from a cornfield in Iowa, corn-fed motherfuckers, bloodthirsty motherfuckers.
1: One of the craziest stories of the last uh, decade is the fact that the Pakistani government just hit Osama bin Laden. (laughs) 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 Yeah, they just hit him
0: out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) fucking crazy. Who was it? Pervez Musharraf. Say the guy. I I guess. Say the. President that kind of I think I think so man. tucked him away. I don't know much about. I don't want to say that authoritatively. I have no idea. Same here. Same here.
1: Well, the thing is, is one of the things that is so weird and disorienting about the current moment is when I was in college, I was so I was much more tuned into like global events, global developments, global shifts in power. Whatever. You read monocle. and I'm new <laughs> things. <laughs> I read Slates and yeah. the Washington Post and um Foreign Policy. Did
0: you ever read that? Did you ever read foreign policy? I I remember like buying the magazines. <clears throat> yeah. And then just kinda setting them aside. They were more like just when girls came over I could <laughs> be, like I was well versed in global affairs.
1: I think like Max Boot wrote for foreign policy. But if if any of you didn't, it was guys like that.
0: Did you ever have that like buy some of these high-toned or heady stylish politics or culture magazines 100% kind of laid them around, you know. Yeah. Well, well, you know, growing up I I was under the assumption
1: that I was a backwater dumbass, you know, just some dumbass yokel. And So going to college I was like, I'm smart now. I got to step it up uh, now, yeah. baby. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, you like, you start reading, you start reading more stuff like foreign policy like I got to know what's going on in the world. Yeah. I remember trying to explain to a hometown friend in, like, 2010 or 11, like, the Greece, the Greek uh, financial crisis. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Just making it up. Just, but, my, you know, being like, my parent, my friend, Kevin probably thinks I'm
0: smart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's what, Yaris, uh, what's his name? Yaris. Yeah, they wrote the book. Which book? You know the book about the eurozone? Oh, uh, Venice, Arafakis. Venice, Arafakis. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Apologies to our Greek listeners mm-hmm. for my butchering of your. No, it's naming customs. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? What was the point you were going to make there? No, I was just making fun of you telling your friend about that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'm. St-
1: I guess you could say I'm still doing that. Well, honestly, that's the that's the gist of this week's episode. It's an attempt to understand a foreign event from from Appalachian perspective. Or
0: not. <laughs> or not. Yeah, yeah. Just from American perspective. I'd really have my hillbilly hat on for this one, <laughs> <laughs> really. I mean, we drew some parallels, but yeah, you are know, right. just, you know. <laughs> yeah, you're right, you're right. But our guest is uh, Joshua Clover, who if you have not read, you can catch his writing at Popula, among other outlets mm. he's a
1: professor at uc davis um the i gotta say this is one of my b- favorite episodes and i can't quite articulate why i think it's i just have never heard it put so clearly
0: the sort of stakes of the moment i guess and also uh the professor is also one of the good ones too that you know yeah. Sort of uh you know, you've had a good professor. I had like yeah. two in college. I had like one. And, <laughs> and uh Josh was sort of like He's a good me one of those guys. No. A throwback to those guys that really engaged you and cared about your Yeah. your you own know? intellectual development and how you arrive at conclusions and um and not just about your trying to uh Earn a credential, right? You know, <laughs>
1: and he's not trying to uh, browbeat you or sort of um, indoctrinate you in his beliefs. He is trying to help you come to your own conclusion. I mean, he's very uh, he's very clear about the beliefs that he has, but he's not trying to make you see the world the way he sees it. He is trying to uh, instill critical thinking, like all good teachers. Right. <laughs> um. So yeah, there was. There was, Yeah, there's several things. It, he helped me sort of see things a little bit better in our sort of immediate situation. But also um, some you know, global events. Like the reason wh- we had him on in the first place was because we wanted to talk about gilets jaunes. <laughs> gilets jaunes. Uh, the gilets jaunes. The gilets jaunes movement um, in France. But uh, soon our, our conversation really started to um, go somewhere else. And it gets a little tangential. Um but that's the that's the point. It's like you can talk about a lot of different things going on with the global economy right now by looking at the yellow vest movement. I'm gonna have to start calling it that from now on because I can't keep doing "Gilets Jaunes." That's um, this makes me sound pretentious. I think it's really fun to say. You like it? Gilets Jaunes. The best is the uh, Calle de Doleance, The the uh, the records that that you know that they have people submit. About their uh, why they're rioting, why they're angry. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of French words that are fun to so. say. Doleons. Um, so we hope you that we hope you enjoy this episode. Um, it's kind of a it's a not that long. It's kind of a longer one, but we you know we really get into the weeds. One of the things that I think is most fascinating about it is what he refers to as um, liberals using the discourse of um ecology and environmental justice or whatever within the context of neoliberal capitalism and the reaction that that then incurs in the population um so for example you know we'll get into it in the episode but the main impetus for the Gilets jean movement was a tax hike or you know a rise in gas prices um that began this riot. And uh and the base the where the origin where that originated was this ostensibly environmental cause, right? Uh you gotta get French drivers off of diesel. And uh what resulted? It's kinda like an Adam Curtis movie movie. But then a funny thing happened. <laughs> <laughs> the Liberals weren't able to manage it's it's a classic example of Liberal managerial types not being able to manage um, the population, not being able to manage dissent and uh, social order, and what happened is you got this um, sort of outrage that spills over every single Saturday in a series of acts.
0: <laughs> yeah, man, they want Macron. Macron. <laughs> Macron. 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 Yeah, Macron on a spit, don't they? Yeah, it's like one lady said, like, I want to see his head roll. <laughs> French don't fuck around. I would to tell you, another thing, while we're on the subject of U.S. military power and ways they've led us astray, the, perhaps the biggest trick they ever pulled was making us think the French were cowards. Motherfuckers <laughs> <laughs> well, don't play. No, no. They never have. <laughs> it's like I was
1: telling you that one day, like, the, the reason they shocked the world in uh, the 1790s is because... Prior to that point, like warfare was this like aristocratic, like very proper procedural. Tete a tete. Yeah, tete a tete. And then all of a sudden, in 1794 and 95, you have these, you have these people. You have these like, uh, you know, like people who are. Just charging the front lines like with arms missing and stuff. Like, <laughs> and the Brits, <laughs> my
0: god, it's not how this is done.
1: I'm on to yeah. <laughs> they're like, Li-
0: liberte <laughs> they're
1: like charging,
0: <laughs> long live the la Republic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it blew people away at the time. It's like, I oh, know we count to three and then we turn around, <laughs> like we've always done. <laughs> exactly, no, uh.
1: I mean that you know that has its own problems. That was the birth of modern patriotism and well, nation yeah, state. So.
0: <laughs> but <laughs> even when you get it right, eventually sometimes it, you can get it wrong. <laughs> Wise well, words from Tom
1: Sexton. Um, well, anyways, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Like I said, it's one of my favorites. Uh, I, I got a lot out of it, and it helped me sort of see the world in my own immediate situation in a slightly different light, and in a um. In a more illuminating way. And so we hope you get the same out of it. Before we launch into it, I just want to remind everybody to please go to the Patreon. Uh, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trailbillyworkersparty.
0: Um, if you like what you hear, uh, give us $5 a month. Yeah, earlier... Th- you can hear more. Or more if you want. Right, right. Earlier
1: this week, we... uh, We... Released one of the Patreon episodes from last month. Um, and so if you like that, go to the Patreon. There's other episodes like that. A little, a little sample of what you'll be getting. A little sam- yeah, we just gave you a little sample of what you'll be getting. First time's free, baby. All right. <laughs>
0: okay, that's horrible. <laughs> I'm sorry. Walk that back.
1: Okay. P A T R E O N dot com slash Billy Workers Party. Please go subscribe. Five dollars a month. Uh, we put out an episode every Sunday. But now, uh let's get to our episode interview with Joshua Clover, professor at UC Davis. You having a good Saturday, Joshua?
2: Uh, I have the craziest thing. I just discovered, I ex- have experienced identity theft. And it's like the most weird, trivial, like someone used my credit card, and I just have like one debit card. That's all, I've, I have no credit whatsoever. So I have a good debit man. card. And uh, someone used it to spend 25 American dollars for German lessons in Austria. <laughs> which seems cool i don't know i want to learn german so i feel like they're you know they're just doing the right thing but i, I had to go cancel my card and all that shit so they're, that was
1: they're living your life they're living they're living
2: my life they're gonna fucking read Marx in the original and i'm still gonna be sitting around being <laughs> like a good translation i don't know <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh shit um well, Joshua, thanks so much for having us, uh, or thank you for coming on our show uh, yeah, I'm happy today. To be here. Um, so, I'll just do some quick introductions. Uh, today's guest is uh, Joshua Clover, a uh, professor at um, UC Davis, um, author of the book uh, Riot Strike Riot. It's out on Verso Books if you want to check it out. Um, Today we're going to be discussing the uh, yellow vest movement, um, or as it's known, uh, the gilets jaunes. Which gilets jaunes? Which nice. Yes, I. So I've been wanting to do this episode for a few months. I just didn't know how to pronounce
0: gilets jaunes. <laughs>
2: You're on it. You're on it.
0: I'll tell both of you. I've been doing the French Duolingo. Now this is the big payoff. <laughs> Your moment has come, right? right here. Yeah. Well, my only knowledge of French language comes from the
1: Revolution itself, and so uh, the only words I can really say ha- are, you know, stuff like Caille. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a
2: good. That's gonna. That's gonna turn out to be relevant. Good
1: one. It will. It will. Um, well, Joshua, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Um, as I mentioned in the um, email I sent you, um, before we like really get into the weeds. I kind of just wanted to maybe do some sort of preliminary, like maybe like a timeline. Basically, um, you know, when and where did the protests begin?
2: So I always think this is a difficult question. I've been trained to think historically in certain ways. So like one answer is like they began on October 5th, 1789 (laughs) with, 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 uh, the woman's march from Paris to Versailles with pitchforks to to try and address the king and queen. And I actually think there's a way that really is the beginning, and maybe I'll come back to that. But of course, more plausibly, the the usual date that's assigned is uh, there was a lot of unrest around the topics that animated the movement or the call for protests on November 17th of last year. and that, that was the first of the so-called acts. They've come to name, they have a sort of a weekly Saturday demonstration across the nation, and each one has come to be known as an act. So each Saturday, last Saturday I think was Act 19, if I've kept track properly. So, yeah, so, so November 17th was the, the first official gathering, and the truth is somewhere in between, right? Because we understand that these kinds of social struggles arise out of a lot of different complicated forces you know social forces and, tr- and traditions and 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 kinds of un, up, uh, you know upset and unrest and and so you know the um over the course of the last 10-15 years these sort of stagnating or lowering standards of living and and people's struggles to make it through the week and through the month are in many ways the wellspring of this uh dramatic social movement yeah
1: well um so yeah i guess the form that it's taken is like uh you know they've they've done roadblocks well that was at the beginning the form that it was taken was roadblocks and uh go slows through important uh, avenues of commerce and transportation and then over i feel like over time it started to slowly morph into um I don't know you. You we in um you know in America we get these images of violent destruction and, and things like that. Um, you know you you in a piece for Popula you wrote in December you said that it was um basically the the best way to understand it is as a bread riot the sort of maybe modern day equivalent of uh, what you would have seen in the you know medieval late medieval and early modern periods. Um, you know what? Explain, I guess, what you mean by that, and and what's the
2: bread they're rioting over in this scenario? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I hope you know this is my, uh, as we say in the industry, my, my field of scholarship. So I hope I won't get too uh, long-winded or boring. I'll try to be brief. So, the riots of the of the period you mentioned, from maybe the 15th century through the end of the 18th century, the most common kind was so, was the so-called bread riot. The main image we have of that is people um, who are hungry, obviously, going down to the baker's and um, taking taking the bread to eat. And that happened, but that was actually not the most common form of, of what we call a bread riot. It sort of took two shapes. One was very much like that, but the first demand they always made was simply to sell the bread at prices people could afford. It wasn't just like showing up and looting. It ended that way sometimes, <laughs> but first they would they would say to the baker, you know, uh, lower your prices to you know that we understand wheat is scarce or whatever, and you're taking this opportunity, but we can't survive. Lower your prices so our family can eat. And if the baker wouldn't do that, that then things get hyphy. Uh, but but that's actually uh, the second most common form that a bread riot takes. Slightly more common in that period is. A merchant, not a baker will decide they can make a bigger profit by shipping grain to the next province or, you know, some other place, even though people are starving. And so they'll ship it and the people will get out in the road and block the wagon and say like, this doesn't work for us. Starving is not an option for us. So this shipment has to stay here and sell it to us at a reasonable price. Or again, we're just going to take it. So, that history is, is very much what we're seeing re- repeated here in, in almost every possible way, right? The blocking of shipment of goods. Uh, and, but mostly it's the demand that this basic staple people need to survive. They can't afford, and they say the prices have to come down. And in this case, the staple is gasoline itself. The structure of the economy, this is true in many places, but it's certainly true in France, is more and more people can't afford to live near where they work. Which is you know maybe a city with high rents, and so they tend to live in the countryside and the exurbs, and and commute to work by car. It's the only way they can afford. And then suddenly you jack up the fuel prices a lot, and that's you know that's not an optional Sunday driving expense. That's how they make a living is driving to get to work. And if they can't afford to pay for that fuel, they can't get to work, and then you know the possibility of that family surviving sort of falls apart. So the demand, you know, that they began with was lower the fuel prices. And that's, you know, exactly like a bread riot, But instead of lower the bread prices, it's lower the fuel prices. And they've used the same strategies of blocking roads and um, uh, making it clear to both merchants and the state that, that they need to set prices where people can survive.
1: Why was Macron um, raising the fuel prices? What, what's, what's the what's the basis of these new uh t-
2: tax hikes or i don't know i guess you'd call them that well it depends whose story you listen to of course. Uh, <laughs> according to macron i don't know how to pronounce that guy's name i don't like the way he looks either so i don't feel <laughs> like i'll be obligated to get it right. but
1: i think um, you called him a uh, a stack of 50 euros with a suit and a tie or something
2: like, that. <laughs> something like that he really just is money personified and it's it's uh unpleasant to look at right um, um So according to him, this was part of a a common and already scheduled ongoing increase in fuel prices designed to achieve two ends. One, to get people to use less fuel, and two, to use the taxes that were gained from this new fuel premium to um, fund ecological measures. So in both senses, positive and negative, they were supposed to be a sort of A green tax to help the ecology and in the abstract we might be sympathetic to that Uh, the problem is that at the same time that macron was instituting this tax he was dramatically lowering the taxes on super rich people businesses and so on so it's a little hard to believe that um he was truly committed to these uh, ecological expenditures, he could have gotten that money quite easily from a corporate tax, even just from keeping the corporate tax the way that it was instead of uh, lowering it. So it looked to people, and I think correctly, much more like a standard austerity measure of passing the expenses of a certain government, a state project on to the proletariat and saying, y'all have to pay for this while the rich get to live their rich lives. And people, as you could imagine, were not enthusiastic
0: about that was it the case that was it doesn't he promise to levy like a three percent gross receipts tax on like the big four corporations like apple google then he kind of reneged on that
2: yeah that's that's right and that's it's unclear that's a sort of a whole other weird global economic struggle which is these there are these corporations the big four as you say that are obviously international in their character but are based in a country as they're required by law to be. You know, someday they they won't. We'll live <laughs> long enough to see the moment when these countries are just completely uh, these companies are just completely stateless and don't need the nation to sort of support them. But for now, they're required to be in a country in some way. So the question of how they get legislated and taxed is always up for grabs. And it's actually very easy for anyone to say, uh, you know, in any country. We're going to tax the big four and it sort of, can be sort of popular because it seems like you're sticking it to America in some way. <laughs> it's it's easier said than done. And and uh, that promise by Macron, I'm not sure how much real substance it has in the end.
1: Yeah. So, you know, so, you know, Macron basically introduces these um, higher tax prices. Under the sort of pretense that uh, it is ecologically sound, I guess they're trying to transition France away from a sort of diesel-centric uh, automotive economy. And, I, and I, that was one of the few—that was one of the first things that stood out to me about this, and why I thought it was so fascinating—is because um, you've got—you uh, know—you've got the introduction of this policy that is ostensibly, you know. Uh, good in some ways right like you are trying we're trying to uh, save the environment we're trying to phase out uh, more environmentally destructive products or whatever but um, by doing so it, it takes place in this really sort of neoliberal hellscape where yeah you pass on those uh, the sort of the brunt of that onto as you said the proletariat so um so then what happened was then you have, people basically uh rising up and saying you know we're not gonna we're not gonna do that well we think that's wrong so can you draw any generalizations i guess about the makeup of the, re- the resulting revolt i mean it's like over again in america it's like we get so many different uh things some people say it's reactionary some people say there are leftist elements some people say that uh you know it, i guess it seems to me that a lot of people say most of these uh uh people are from maybe sort of more peripheral areas and more rural areas so i don't know can you draw um any sort of generalizations i guess about that
2: uh well you know i've learned by now that any generalization you make is always going to be wrong so (laughs) i want to be i want to be slow to do that and and you know so there's there's two ways that's difficult to do yeah one it's not entirely clear any generalization could have been made at the beginning back last fall to as it's evolved and it's still ongoing we're still seeing these saturday acts sometimes they remain quite dramatic uh it certainly has changed a lot over that time so i want to be slow to make generalizations at the same time i don't want to be a sort of left optimist it is like I'm always interested in movements that are anti-state because I identify myself as sort of not a fan of a, a authorita- authoritarian state organization for society. Um, at the same time, I think we've all been aware this sort of populist uprisings against the state often have extremely reactionary elements in them, and that's been true this time as well. Um, yeah, uh, sometimes these reactionary elements are affiliated with parties, with Le Pen's Rassemblement National, uh, but often just sort of like freelance neo-fascists, you know, yeah. um, who, who don't identify with 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 organized politics, but are quite reactionary and quite xenophobic. And those people exist and have existed all the way through. Uh, at the same time, there's been extremely progressive and left elements to it. Um, this is not only true in the cities sometimes it's easier to identify like oh yeah the cities are more um the the sort of strongholds of of leftists or socialists or 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 what have you and i'm not sure that's true i think that you know of the various groupings that have been involved some of them have been city-based uh like the the committee of adama which is named after a uh, someone who got killed by the cops in, in sort of classic fashion, right? It's, uh, an immigrant grouping that's very anti-racist, anti, anti-police, um, but there have been quite progressive uh, figures coming from, as you say, these rural areas, the countryside, the exurbs, who've been part of it. So it's a very variegated movement, and the main thing to pay attention to, I think, is the struggles within it because the anti-fascist, anti-racist, the leftists. Have really had to fight to to sort of push out the the fascist elements, and in many ways have succeeded.
1: Yeah, well, and as you described, I think in the popular piece, you basically said it is a low key civil war in the sense that they're fighting for a specific vision of, of France. And, uh, and yeah, I I you know um, there was an article that just came out in the London Review of Books. Um, that I made Tom read <laughs> to prepare for this. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that like they focused on in that, it was written by Jeremy Harding. Uh, one of the things they focused on in that was that it's interesting to distinguish, I guess, that uh, there's like there's these sort of like immigrant and African uh, maybe uh, color communities in the Banglu and um, they haven't participated so much in these protests. And and so I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting distinction. That it seems that a lot of this pro- the protest began, or the riots, as you would call them, began more in the sort of provinces, and and that's of interest to us because um, you know if you look at the makeup of America and, and who is made to pay for uh, neoliberal uh, policies and and whatnot, it's it's easy to sort of read into uh, what's happening there as something that could potentially happen here i don't know if that's a scientifically sound assessment or what but
2: um i think i mean there, i think there's real insight to that actually the um you know the ways that the sort of state capital nexus has of managing different populations is different in the way that the extremely immiserated people of the Banlieu in, in France, that's mostly immigrants, North African, Arabic. Um, often those people don't have formal jobs. I mean, people have to do have some kind of hustle to, to survive. So it's not like people are just sitting around all day collecting the dole. That's not really what's happening. But often it's an informal hustle. It's off the books. And in that case, it's actually a bit harder for the state to extract Money from them and to discipline them through the wage, and so you get a lot more direct violence. The cops, the CNS—that's the riot police—going um, in there and uh, you know doing the same things we see in in the inner cities in, in the U.S. On the other hand, out in the provinces or you know, France profonde, as they as they say, sort of the grand expanse away from Paris and away from the big cities, uh, the the people who seem to have been at the wellspring of this movement are people who have traditional wages. They're not very good wages. Um, But in that sense, you can get this austerity extraction of of money from them. And so those are two very different economies and the the question of how they could come together. Like we see in this movement, the political split between those two different economies, Uh, you know, the economy of the excluded and the exploited, as I always say. Yeah. And, And the question of how they can come together, that's obviously the huge political question of our times. That was the question of the Occupy movement in the U.S., right, which involves some people who were already completely unemployed, completely immiserated, and living in the encampments. And then some people who had houses, had jobs, but were downwardly mobile and pissed off uh, and and struggling. And those, like, trying to figure out if those two populations could Form of political unity. That's well, the same question in France, right, is, is whether these two populations can come together. And right now it's still up in the air.
1: Right. So um, Macron has made uh, a few concessions um, since it began. Um, what are some of those concessions? And, uh, you know, I guess my sort of sub-question of that is one of the concessions he made is the sort of this great national debate, as he said, um, which is supposed to sort of mirror you know, getting back to the French Revolution, it's supposed to sort of mirror the testimonies that the three estates drew up in seventeen eighty nine. Um and <laughs> I've, I've got it, man. <laughs> <You're doing> it. <laughs> like what 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 has been the sort of result of that uh, you know, so far and um, you know, what is its I don't know, what is this trajectory?
2: yeah well I'm not sure I know the answer to that question you know the the main initial concessions that he made were he uh, put a halt to the fuel tax uh, that didn't stop the bleeding much at all he increased the national minimum wage not a huge amount uh, but but a little that didn't stop the bleeding People kept on saying the movement was gonna you know die out peter out uh, it certainly is continuing I'm I'm sort of a pessimist at heart, so I don't know how much longer it'll continue, but it's already lasted a lot longer than than I expected and been a lot more dynamic. Everyone thought the Christmas break would kill it, and it didn't. Um, so Macron's latest, latest strategy we announced, I guess, in, in February was the, the great national debate. And having been through a lot of political organizing in my life, my main position is fuck a debate, which is to say, like, I've always experienced uh, you know in kinds of organizing where eventually you show up and you occupy you know i've been involved in a lot of university struggles you show up with a bunch of students and workers and you occupy the chancellor's uh, uh building and the first thing they do is send down some apparatchik down the stairway to say like well let's let's have a debate <laughs> um hey, <yeah. laughs> I'm very familiar and with that um, and of course that's been a a very common strategy of the alt right in the US over the course of the last couple of years like I just want to I just want to debate you. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, no you don't. You're you're desperately playing for time because you see that people are angry enough to actually try and change their lives and and that terrifies you and you're doing anything you can to stall. So I'm suspicious of debate, but as you say, you know, maybe there's a hope for optimism. Leading up, you know, in, in the in the years before the French Revolution, the government understood people were really unhappy, and they sent out uh, a bunch of emissaries to gather information about people's unhappiness. The famed Cahiers de doléances the notebooks of unhappiness, right? Yeah. And, uh, and I think they similarly thought like if they just really seemed to be listening and take account, and then maybe made some concessions toward what they found they could stem the revolutionary tide. And that did not happen. Uh, And, you know, so we can hope for the same this time.
1: Yeah. Well, um, so I guess this kind of gets, you know, I kind of want to get back to a little bit what we were talking at the beginning. This kind of gets into the the meat of what I really wanted to discuss with you, is that, um, you know, in the popular article, you you mentioned that it's notable that these um, took, The forms of riots instead of strikes, especially in a country, uh, you know, in the sort of Western capitalist imperial core that has managed to hold on to its uh, to union power much more so than America and other countries. Um, You know, what does that say about uh, what does that say about our modern era that that we're seeing more of these sort of riots instead of of the traditional strike that we saw in the sort of nineteenth and twentieth centuries? And uh, what does it say, I guess, about the future of political struggle in a, a post-industrial world?
2: Well, that's certainly my big question. So uh, it's generous of you to ask. And, and like, as with all big questions, I don't think I can give a, a small answer to it without really leaving out a lot of important details and important aspects. But, but um, yeah, we live in a time of the, of the waning of the organized labor movement that really oriented political struggle for people in the West. Uh, since at least uh, you know, 1830 is the first sort of big strike wave and and, and since then uh, into this into the 70s and maybe the 80s. And since then, organized labor across the West has declined in various ways. It's incredibly dramatic in the United States, this decline. I can give you the numbers if you want, but I can hold off to it's sort of me spouting data and it can be a little dry. But uh, it, it's, it's waned less in France. That's true. The sort of the large union or union of unions, the CGT has preserved a lot of power. It's been able to magnetize a lot of political action, orient a lot of political action, sometimes in ways people didn't like. A lot of people felt like the CGT sold out the movement in 1968 uh, when they really had sort of organizational power over the over larger political struggle. And we've seen a weakening of them in France over the last few years. So they used to be really hostile to other kinds of political engagement that we would probably identify with a riot um, with sort of, sort of more wild action in the streets. Uh, but in the last few years, notably with the so-called Nuit de boom movement a couple of years ago, they seemed more open to uh, being in the streets with people who were not unionists and who were interested in things other than just demanding a slightly higher wage. Uh, and in the case of the Gilets Jaunes movement, the CGT has actually played a very minimal role. They they, sh- they showed up late. They haven't shown any power to get people to do what they want them to do or to uh, comport themselves in a the sort of traditional, like, let's go for just a really big march and then and then go home. Uh, they seem to have no power of it. And so we, the question we should legitimately ask that I think you've asked is, like, what's what's changed? Is it just, like, unions got tired or... People got tired of unions. I don't think that's the case. We've seen this wave of deindustrialization. There, there's still many people who work in vari- in various sectors, but there sectors that are much harder to organize. It's really hard to organize service sectors. It's really hard to organize people who have flexible work. They don't work with the same people every day. They don't have the same confidence and trust and communities built up. Uh, there's For various reasons, it's hard to organize uh, the labor landscape as it is today. Um, moreover, you have more and more people who are permanently displaced from work, who are the proletariat, but not the working class. Right. You know, when you look at the that the banlieue in, in, in France or or um, what we used to call the ghettos in the in the U.S., right. uh, these these are sort of examples of this, right? People who are just excluded from the the traditional labor market, and so when they struggle. Of course, they're not going to struggle at work because they have no work. They're not going to struggle over a wage because they have no wage. They're getting money, but it's because they are they got some hustle. They're dealing drugs or selling cigarettes or cutting hair in their front room or doing sex work or whatever it is, right? But that's not going to be the basis of a labor struggle. They still have to survive by buying shit in the market, yeah. right? So they're still market dependent, as we say, in in, in technical language. So that's where they're going to fight. They're going to fight over... Uh, the marketplace, how much things cost, whether they can get what they need to survive, uh, and so more and more we see fights returning to that kind of shape, and the Gilets zone is a literally textbook example.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that is, I guess is interesting about a sort of bread ride is that it is a sort of expression of, I guess, regulation on a market. Um, it just comes from the sort of opposite direction of the state. So I guess, like in a world where, um, you know, there is more and more of a surplus population, I guess I guess you would expect to see those kinds of struggles more openly. Uh, maybe I I'm not sure. I mean, this isn't my area of expertise, but it would just seems to me that that seems more correct.
2: I don't know. Yeah, I think it it seems that way to me as well, and I think that's what we have been seeing. The thing is, they in general they don't look exactly the way they looked in the 18th century, which is to say they're they're at that time they're really explicitly economic, right? Lower your prices or we'll burn down your shop. Um, now the riots that we mostly see, I mean we know what they look like. Over and over again they happen because the cops kill a kid, usually a kid of color, sometimes an adult. Um, and uh, that's the first stage. And the second stage is the cops then walk away with complete impunity. They don't get charged or they don't get convicted or, or whatever. And and it's that sense that it's just okay for the state to kill the people it doesn't need um, that, that sets these things off. So that looks really different from a bread ride. It's not like people are saying you have to lower your prices. They're, they're saying, let us live. Um, uh, or And... So, trying to understand the relationship between those two things—that's sort of been my the kind of work I've I've, I've been doing—and uh, I think that you know the Gilets Jaunes movement is is pecu- peculiar and interesting in part because it is explicitly like those those earlier riots. It does, it didn't have that moment where um, you know Freddie Gray gets killed, or say Bruna in France in two thousand five gets gets killed. Uh, to set it off but at the same time it does share a characteristic with those early riots of them being led by people who don't have the wage and the workplace orienting their political lives and so have to figure out how to proceed there's, just, there's so many more cops now than there were in 1750 you know this is <laughs> it's a dramatic change there were certainly state forces then and um, you know, armies could be shifted here and there, and national guards, and and there were bailiffs and various other categories. But the idea that there's a police garrison within 12 blocks of you or wherever you are, right, that's a very modern new idea, and and that's why we see over and over again sort of direct struggle with the cops uh, as always the form that these things are going to take, and that has to be overcome.
0: Yeah. What What is just, uh, and I'm kind of coming in this sort of ignorantly, but but. Are French police militarized in the same way that the American police would be at like a similar type demonstration?
2: Well, no one's as militarized, as militarized as the American police except maybe for the Israeli police. But the the French police are pretty militarized. They're broken down into various categories that are slightly uh, opaque to Americans, but not that different in the, in the end. But the riot police there are pretty militarized. I've, as of course, purely in the context of research, I've been in a French riot or two. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, I've, and so I've seen some of the the riot police uh, there and they, they're, they're militarized similarly. They've got a lot of tear gas, a lot of pepper spray, a lot of concussion grenades. Um, they're less willing to use live ammunition to this point, I think. But that's always temporary. That that circumspection on the part of the police is always temporary. All right. uh, but but they're pretty militarized.
1: Yeah. Um, I guess one thing I wanted to explore a little bit, I'm not quite sure how to articulate it, is that— um, you know, you point out in the sort of popular piece that, uh, you know, you have this great sort of bullet point list. You say immigration and eco- ecology are one fist. You're essentially talking about, um, and this is a huge interest of, uh, point of interest for me and Tom, the sort of rise of what you could call maybe a sort of green nationalism. Um, like, as politics in Europe and United States are, are more increasingly centered around this nexus of, uh, you know... Uh, states so- uh, i guess you could call it state sovereignty but um more along the lines of like uh, nationalism and who gets to define the nation and and uh, immigrant quotas and all this i guess i'm just interested about like the introduction of environmentalism and green politics into that situation um so i don't know could you just sort of i guess flesh that out a little bit that specific point and how it has to do with this uh protest movement
2: yeah, I think you and Tom were interested in the crucial thing here. I really think this is going to be the story of the next 50 years. Uh, you know, so we I think there's two huge phenomena that we're living through right now. One is something that's classically internal to capitalism, which is the question of whether the labor markets are absorptive or not, right, which is to say the, the, the dream of capitalism is it can endlessly expand. It has to, in fact, and it does that by endlessly taking in new labor inputs. That is, as I always like to point out, that's the national slogan of the United States of America. It's written in big letters on the Statue of Liberty. It takes the shape of a poem, but that poem basically says, we will take your labor. Right. That's all it says. And it right. says it in hearty <laughs> ways, but it says we will absorb labor from anywhere. Come on in, y'all. <laughs> and uh, as long as that's true, capital's pretty happy and pretty healthy. But one of the things that, that we've noticed that's a fundamental phenomenon of deindustrialization, increasing efficiency and productivity so that you just don't need as much labor to make a car uh, or make a whatever else people make, we always use cars as an example in America. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, increasingly, we've seen the end of what I refer to as an absorptive capitalism that can absorb labor inputs. Uh, and that's not just true in the U.S. That's true in the deindustrializing nations, the United Kingdom, Western Europe. And as that happens, uh, we've seen a uh, greater desire to control la- labor markets by controlling borders in various ways and that of course mobilizes xenophobia that may have other roots I don't want to explain everything according to capitalism uh, but even if xenophobia is and racism are older than capitalism and capitalism certainly mobilizes them as a justification or excuse or a kind of force to help close these borders and 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 uh, restructure an economy that no longer wants to take labor inputs uh, into it. So that's one huge phenomenon we're living through is this rise of, of uh, hard borders, because there's no need for for labor inputs. The other th- great phenomenon we're living through, of course, is climate collapse. Uh, it's hard for me to say that without thinking about the end of the world, um, with themes in the offing, um, and which because I'm still a tiny bit of an optimist, I think of as a bad thing. Uh, and uh, one of the things that, that, that climate collapse is doing is guaranteeing that people are going to flee uh, nations that ha- are, are essentially an economic collapse for climate reasons, drought and so on. People can't survive there. They're going to go look for someplace they can survive. So those are two forces. And obviously, they run together a massive wave of climate refugees coming up against a massive hardening of borders at a national level, and that's going to be the story of our lives, I think. You know, in the U.S., we we already know the sort of horrific examples of these thousand yahoos in the Rio Grande Valley and wherever down along the southern border, who, uh, you know, are not employed by the state, but are happy to do that work driving around their four by fours with their shotguns shooting at immigrants, right? Mm. And the bad news is that thousand dudes, I assume it's mostly dudes, maybe that you know, maybe that's sexist of me, but I just assume it is.
1: <laughs> it um, probably is.
2: <laughs> um, that thousand dudes is going to be 10,000 dudes real soon. You know, um, which is to say, as the sort of xenophobic hysteria around borders ri- rises and as refugees flow more and more, this is going to really intensify. Which is to say, um, states are going to state, uh, but one of the ways they're going to try and manage resources and manage populations is going to be through this ecological discourse. So, like, not just like, oh, we don't want immigrants because we don't want it, um, them, you know, putting pressure on our school system. We hear that a lot in California. Like, oh, the terrible thing about immigrants is they're going to come to our schools and take our classes and learn things. but that's going to somehow stop other people from learning things. And <laughs> it, it doesn't make much sense. But racism generally, it doesn't. And. You know, that's a model of the kind of resource protection logic that we're going to see more and more. It's not going to be about school systems. It's going to be about fresh water. And increasingly, we're going to just hear this rhetoric across the United States that says, well, you know, immigrants, they're probably lovely people. We respect all humans. The problem is we have a limited supply of water american water for americans of course it'll all be canadian water but we'll conveniently ignore that fact uh and we'll say american water for americans and the the border is going to be loaded with with people uh cheerful excited enthusiastic to defend it to make sure that our ecological resources are husbanded while the rest of the world drowns and and starves uh and you know that's just going to be the political story, not the only one, but an increasingly intense one over our lifetimes. You have a lot more lifetime ahead of y'all than I do, but uh, um, I, I think that there's no way around the fact that the left, insofar as there is a left and we can believe in it, needs to seize control of that rather than letting uh, the rhetoric of ecology, the discourse of ecological control be something the government. That takes power over that can't be allowed for a second i I'm saying. yeah
1: um i know this is this isn't a question that we're going to be able to answer here but i am in, in but this is a question that has bothered me for a little bit of time now given these realities and um you know everything that we've just sort of laid out the sort of traditional understanding of like uh, marxism and and of communism. Uh, is basically that like in order to exert some kind of political leverage on the system and seize state power, you have to organize basically along the lines of the workers, right the workers uh, they uh, they they create profit, they need to control the means of production, therefore you can sort of articulate that into a program that could then seize state power if the if the if the case is that there are less and less workers in that traditional sense, how are we going to encounter this problem of articulation is it going to be uh you know is the best we can hope for is like a, a bernie type figure or, or or you know what i mean like that to me seems very inadequate personally but um in a in a world in which that we've just described it i'm just not sure what really
2: the the left is supposed to do <laughs> well i hope this isn't unfair but I want to turn this question back on on you and Tom. Since I mean, you have the this formulation of the Trillbilly worker parties. I really appreciate the work you're doing. I'm interested in it. You know, my grandparents identified as hillbillies, um, <laughs> and their, you know, their parents were Okies, and they they moved out to California. They lived in a tiny little town. And uh, that question, I think, of what deindustrialization looks like, what the end of work uh, and the work the the decline of the working class looks like, is posed really dramatically in the inner cities but I think it's also posed really dramatically in spaces like uh, Appalachia where you are so um, I mean how does it look like to you from there you tell me
1: well it's it's hard I mean I guess that I, Wait, you I, just
0: wrote about this
1: well that's true I, I did just write about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that like you know from where we're sitting um, we don't you know our lives are a, a sort of perpetual cycle of being uh, you know reinforced through various ideolo- ideological indoctrination programs of you know your sort of role and function within the larger sort of social structure and uh, basically that says that if you live in the uh, if you live in the rural areas your role is to shut the fuck up and not challenge the extraction of resources which you know as time continues become less and less you know we're we're sort of like we're running out of a lot of the things that we used to mine and drill and timber and and things like that and so um and you know just me and tom sitting here like we can't really do anything about that we can sort of try to organize people in our community maybe like in a concerned citizens way or maybe we can try to organize the the uh the uh you know nationally the, what you have to do nationally is you have to have some sort of like you have to have a workers party really you have to have a, a a national movement centered in the sort of interest of you know the service industry workers the care workers the teachers and the tenants i think and you have to find a way to sort of honestly you know it kind of feels like reinventing the wheel but honestly i would like to see some form of like a soviet or you know what i mean something that like combines maybe uh you know workers um the tenants and uh you know socialists who would ostensibly be holding power but don't have any way to express it so i don't know i guess it would have to be some sort of like soviet or workers committee but you have to have something that can unite those into a larger national force that can exert power on the national stage um that's a tall order and
2: i'm just one guy (laughs) Well, yeah, that should take like 10 minutes. Just Get on it. Um, but but so, but so let me ask a follow-up question. I know this is my podcast now. Yeah, I'll go, go for it. it. Let me ask a follow-up question. So what's the relationship of that workers' party to the all the people who are part of the proletariat but don't work or don't have a formal wage?
0: That's a great question. Yeah, that is <laughs> – that is the $64,000 question.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: That's the thing. You have to find a way to make it in their interest as well.
0: And and that's exactly the situation here.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly the situation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: I was thinking about that this week with all this sort of uh, talk about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez coming here as part of this, like, Sunrise Movement, you know, championing the Green New Deal Appalachian, right. and Appalachian all this stuff. And, and uh, the congressman from down the road in Lexington, where University of Kentucky is... Was like you know, go to a coal mine. What you need to go to a, visit a coal mine and all this stuff. And we were talking yesterday, it's like if she does there's just gonna be for a rude awakening, nothing like that is going on here anymore. You're right,
1: exactly. Yeah.
0: So people yeah, people aren't wage earners really here anymore. I'm right in that way. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, I don't know. You have to find a way to ostensibly make it in their interest, but I don't know. You know, I they did it in the French Revolution before industrial capital really <laughs> sort of existed there. But um, this is a massive country, uh, and that, that presents a
2: huge obstacle. It's a massive country, but also, I mean, that was a bourgeois revolution in the technical sense. right? right? I would say it, was a, it was a revolution on, on behalf of the bourgeois class to try and set their productive powers loose from the history of monarchy, feudalism, and and so on uh and you know i that's not such the the you know we live in a period of the victory of the bourgeoisie and it will be a self-consuming victory in the end we know whether it consumes the rest of us with it uh is is unclear it has to this point you know it seems to me like there's just two things i would say like i i would not disagree with your account uh, mostly because, you know, I just like to agree with people. I'm a friendly
0: guy.
2: I <laughs> yeah, um, <us> too. <laughs> but, but, you know, um, and, the, you know, the main thing I've come to believe in my life is that people fight where they are. So if people are in a job and that orients their life a lot. Uh, um, they're going to fight there. They're going to organize in the workplace and try and figure out how to be, um, how to politicize their, their work and their work life, and organize around it. And I totally get that. Uh, but if people aren't, you know, uh, if, if where people are is not in the workplace, not in the formal workplace, you know, they're going to fight somewhere else. And I think it's very hard to say, no, come fight with my workers fight, even though you're not there. The thing that's been really important for me is, you know, I, I was um, trained. I never know if that's the right word as as a Marxist. Uh, I, I've, I read a lot of Marx as in English. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, um, uh, and but I was also raised in the world in the you know in the U.S. in the 80s and 90s, very much in that sort of the socialist tradition, working the working class tradition, in a way that had tr- trouble recognizing anything else as class politics. And what's been really important for me is to think about the fact that people who are not members of the traditional working class are still engaged in class politics, if their social position has been generated by the structural relations of capitalism, uh, even if what's been generated for them is absolute unemployment, absolute exclusion from the labor market, that's still an outcome of class relations. And their struggle is still a class struggle. And so it's really important for me when I see the self-activity of people who are largely excluded from the labor market, and here I'm referring to what other people call riots. Uh, you know, the first, my first step is okay. Well, that's 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 class struggle, um, and it may not be the same kind of class struggle as the union-led labor organizing that really oriented us in 1935. But it's not 1935, and I, I want to be really open to different kinds of class struggle, and I'm not certain. <laughs> that a class struggle that presumes a formal wage earner has a lot of future so the big question i'll leave you with is whether the logic of seizing control of the state is fundamentally related to the logic of having a workers party and whether other kinds of class struggle might not have as the horizon something distinct from seizing control of the state maybe doing away with it like i'm just not a leninist i don't want to seize the state i don't think it's a good idea
0: right
1: well that uh, um it's really uh, in a way it's very comforting for me to hear i'm not necessarily a linenist either um you're wearing a red shirt though a <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> <laughs> hey, good point um but i think that'll be great for our, our listeners to hear and you know people got to be more um they got to be more uh sort of Adepts. They got to be more... um, Dynamic. Dynamic, exactly. Uh, And so we really appreciate that. Um, The big question I'll leave you with Uh um, (laughs) that I hear all the time, uh, what is it about uh, French society (laughs) that makes them so much better at, uh, as you would say, writing than we do? They, They got fucking... Forklifts—they're breaking down ministry yeah. <laughs> I'm—the I'm, only reason I'm asking this is because so many people ask it as well on, on online and other places. They're like, they really know how to ride over in France. Like, <laughs> maybe this is tied back to what we were saying at the beginning. It started in 1789 at the Women's March.
2: They I'll, I'll come right back to that. Thank you for giving me a big opening. <laughs> yeah. So they've had a lot of style. There's—I've been—I I've watched a lot of videos. I've been sorry to not be there in person. Uh, some of my favorite videos, like some person laid a hold of a forklift and lifted up a burning car they love to set cars on fire in france it's a great national tradition <laughs> and the voiture brulee so they got lifted up a burning car onto a forklift and slammed it into a a toll booth Like this is all part of the logic of like this real hostility towards circulation in general like all the signs like the car the toll booth like destroy it all right and i think that's that's quite yeah. amazing. There was also this moment where in Paris, someone tried to ram a forklift into one of the minister's offices. Because they keep on storming Macron, the what's it called, the Élysée Palace, mm-hmm. uh, where Macron lives. We keep on trying to storm it. Because that's a great French tradition, too, right? Storming the castle. We don't do that so much in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. uh, but so that moment of like, you know, it used to be pitchforks, and now it's forklifts. Those women marched on Versailles carrying pitchforks to the palace, uh, saying like, you've you gotta go. and and they hold to that tradition in France, across, you know, more than two hundred years. And you have to admire that. But in truth, less comically, um, you know France as a nation has this really interesting structure. It's not a small country. I think we have about 80 million citizens right now, maybe a little bit more. Uh, but at the same time, it really is oriented by a single city, Paris, right? In fact, the Gilets Jaunes riots have been, as we know, in the provinces and they move to the cities, but lots of cities, Toulouse, Bordeaux, Lyon, and so on. But everyone's just like Paris, Paris, Paris. And in a way, that's kind of true, right? Who controls Paris controls France. And when you have a nation where if you can control the capital city, you control the country, it's much easier to topple the government. Look at Iceland, man. They will drop the government there in 24 hours because three quarters of the population lives in Reykjavik, right? And uh, so it's possible. Now in the U.S., we actually have a far more a multipolar, distributed. You know, Houston is huge, Phoenix is huge, Los Angeles is huge, and Chicago is huge, and on and on and on. And that's not even counting the vast, you know, open spaces of the great plains of appalachia the pacific northwest so it's not the case you can just uh, seize paris and it's over right right um and so when we get down to not just the abstract well class mass party sequence or whatever but the practicalities of where do you go to do your thing this is complicated terrain
1: yeah well i i uh I think that, um, you know, Americans, we, we see stuff like that. And uh, it kind of annoys me when I see people on the Internet like we need to get our shit together like the, the French. We need to be doing this. It's like, you know, we're we're doing our best. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there's, a long, there's a long ways to go. But um, uh, it I, you know, and honestly, when I think when the rev happens, I think the rev happens. I believe in it. But I think it probably doesn't happen first in the U.S. It maybe spreads here, but I think there's other places that are more likely.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: I think I think there's like some place where there's a real single urban con, uh, sort of concentration, but that has got arable fields around it. Because the first thing that happens with the rev, right, is if the international community cuts you off, if there's a communist revolution, no one's going to ship you any grain. And so you need arable fields immediately. Like you, you need uh, extremely high yield land to grow your food and support the rev for a couple of years while while you sort of try to expand it and so you know someplace in south america maybe brazil yeah yeah well i'll be fine with that <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs>
0: sooner the better in portuguese man it's all
2: happening yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: well your uh your doppelganger alter ego who, who is learning German, maybe. Roman right
2: uh, and Austria, yeah. I gotta uh, get you know them
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, Joshua, I I really appreciate it. This has been one of my favorite. This episodes. is a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah, honestly, it's been one of my favorites. I knew it was going to be, because
2: um, I've just wanted to pick your brain for a while. Um, I will appreciate both of y'all talking to me. It, it's a. Uh, it's nice to have a chance to work this through with people, and uh, you know, one of the reasons I've been fall. I don't do podcasts a lot. I just don't quite have. Can't figure out where in my life i listen to them, but. <laughs> I've been keeping up with Trivillity because I'm actually super interested in what's happening in Appalachia. and I think it's important. So keep going, y'all.
1: Well, we appreciate it, Joshua. I yeah, appreciate that.
2: Um, is there any way – do you want to plug anything, uh, any of your writing or, or books or anything? Uh, n- uh, my plug is communism is not the same as socialism. Figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that's the Truebilly's plug as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: well, we appreciate it, Joshua, and um, I'll let you know when this goes up. Thank you again so much for being with us. Thank uh, you, yeah. Take care. All right. We'll see you later.